First of all, we've got to think of something something witty that's got to be said at the start. All right. I'll just read an excerpt from this book. The bit about uh, Huxley. Hold on. Sorry, bear with me, bear with me. Welcome to episode 38 of the world-famous Tetrapodsology Podcasts. <laughs> Podcasts. Damn it. Professional, professional. Uh, That's some very posh cats. <laughs> My name's Sheriff Kelly. Yeehaw! <laughs> I'm Deputy Dog. <laughs> and in this thrilling episode... Uh, are we doing this... Um, Darren talks to school kids bit. Yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. In this episode, Darren talks to school kids. <laughs> and are we doing the Conquest of the Skies thing? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Conquest of the Skies <laughs> thing. And uh, cash for three and cash for questions. Welcome to our many thousands of new listeners. Uh-huh. Yeah. 3.5 million listeners. Can't be wrong. That's right. That's what I'm telling people. So today is... January the 21st, 2015. Do you know what that means, John? Do you know what that means? Mm, Have you been to... Yes. Is it the birthday today? Today marks nine years of Tetrapod Zoology, as it says at the blog Tetrapod Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. Mm. Nine years. Nine years. You are so So, old. (laughs) So happy birthday, Tetrapod Zoology. Insert party sound effects here. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. Um, there's a tape here. In fact, there's a couple of tape here in the article. Uh-huh. Um, should we just... So, agenda says F you. <laughs> F you, <All> right. Darren. <laughs> <laughs> F you. So, to new listeners, there's a section of the show called F you. Mm. And most of our F you concerns Planet of the Apes. Okay. <laughs> so, episode 37 was titled... Dawn of the Planet of the Non-Homo Sapiens Apes, catchy title that John came up with. Mm -hmm. And now we covered a whole load of stuff to do with what's happening in Sophie of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh Uh And if you go to, okay, McChris, hello McChris, regular listener. McChris suggests that the name for the website where the podcast is hosted should be called (laughs) Tetsu Podcastle. (laughs) Or Tetsu Podcast House. <laughs> but then he points out that apparently in some countries, Cat House is a word for a brothel. Yeah, <laughs> so nice. I don't know. Yeah. We kind of act like cheap prostitutes. So, uh, Cash for questions. A- <laughs> so at the Tetsu.com site, oh my God, thank you. 
Muppet expert and Planet of the X, Planet of the Apes expert Tom Holtz, <laughs> um, and of course all-round dinosaur expert and general good science person, uh, even Evan Boucher, uh, uh, Irene Dels, Mike Keezy, Christian the Dingo, <laughs> Ivan Kwan, and many, many others have all just, there's loads of comments here about Planet of the Apes, and basically how we, we've got a lot, well, you in particular, got a lot wrong, <laughs> as goes, um, as goes, the possible story arcs of the Planet of the Apes films and about how the new ones don't can't match up with the previous ones. And, and there were comments on Facebook as well. Uh, Richard Hing in particular has sent something interesting. I can't remember what it was now. Um, Evan Boucher. So, take a drink. Pronouncing that wrong. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evan says, um, as for references to the... Because, you know, I said that maybe... Uh, how do, how do the new movies match up with the old ones from the 60s and 70s or mm. 70s, whenever they're made? Mm. Um, but I, says, we, we haven't really seen the... Well, I haven't seen any of the sequels from the 70s. Well, I have, but back in the day. Yeah. And I, and I sort of like semi-remembered them, and that's kind of what... So uh, Evan says that Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the 2011 movie, is a quasi-remake of the fourth movie, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, where Caesar leads a revolution. But in that version, Caesar isn't a science experiment. Rather, he's smart, since he's the offspring of Cornelius and Zira. That's the scientist chimpanzee from the first movie, who somehow came from the future back to the 1970s version of Los Angeles world in the third movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, which is a nice reverse of the original one, once you get past the ridiculousness. And then I also said, could it be that Maurice, the... Um, one of the main orangutan character in uh, the new movies could could he be a prototype Doctor Zeus from the original Planet of the Apes? No, he's a reference to this character called the Lawgiver, who's referred to in the original, who's meant to be an intellectual teacher type character. The apes are always referring to when discussing their laws, history, and religion. Blah 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 blah. So thank you, Evan, and thank you everyone else for all the copious information you provided on Planet of the Apes. I think we now know more about it than. Uh, we ever wanted to. We yeah, wanted to, and uh, apparently I made the mistake again where I was talking about uh, Dr. Man in Interstellar, mm. and I said it was Marky Mark Wahlberg or something, and it's not, it's Matt no, Damon. It's Thank Matt you. Damon, yeah. Me- I think I let that one pass, because oh. I think when someone says something like that, you just fill in the face, don't you? Yeah, but you got to correct me, John, because someone else will. Yeah. Mike Keezy just did. Thanks, Mike. <sighs> yeah. Uh, the actual story arc of Planet of the Apes, I don't really care. Unless they make the films better, I don't care. <laughs> um, John and I have just had a long discussion about the movie Lucy, which I really want to talk about because it's so awful. Oh, okay. Uh, see, Although, I yeah. thought it was awful. You'll probably quite like it. Yeah, I'll quite like it. Um, yeah, we'll see it. Um, well, I'll see it um, hopefully in time for next time. So that's what we'll do next time for popular Lucy. Tap. So, if you haven't seen Lucy and you want to hear what we think about it, it has got a dinosaur in it oh. and some and some other uh, extinct fauna. See if you can guess what it is. Clues in the name. Um, yeah, Lucy. It's by Luke Besson, who Leon and um, uh, Fifth Element and a bunch of other really good films. But well, you know, just because people make good films in the past doesn't mean they make them <laughs> more. More into the present or future. Now, final thing. Go ahead. Yeah, final thing. The other thing, in, uh, uh, I said last time I had to um, keep muting the microphone 
And do you know what happens when I mute the microphone? It goes tick, and then it does something to the recording. Yes, it creates a strange digital artifact, digital artifact, digital artifact. So you get that. So there's several times in episode 37 where, where uh, I think it affected you. So you you sound really funny. So maybe I'll do it again. Mm. So. Mm. Okay, so that's, uh, that's all I have to say as it goes. Yeah. F you. Yeah. Wasn't that all pointless? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure most people... do other. I don't listen to other podcasts. Do other podcasters do that kind of thing? What? Follow up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure they do. Good ones okay. do. Yeah. Good ones. Okay, oh, so we're one of the good ones. I'm just yeah. thinking people, people that do radio shows, they don't. No, because that's because the media is terrible. As we know, if they get something wrong, they just never mention it again. Uh-uh. I thought it was because they've got some deliberate policy of like, oh, you don't tread over old ground. You're always going forwards. You don't mention your mistakes. Yeah, you don't mention your mistakes, exactly, which is ridiculous. Uh, there's the difference between scientists and non-scientists. Well, yeah, all bad journalists, I think. Yes. Well, I've got to say... Also, that, you, you know, can get a bit mired in it because, you know, the discussion go on and on and on and on. You've got to know when to... Sort of... Yeah, yeah. That is an important point, though. I mean, people that are, you know, in the, the world of science, we history is important and we do tend to try and correct things because we think we're improving all the time. Although how that relates to something like a podcast... Yeah, well, not... when you say something wrong or you say something cer- to make it sound like it's certain when it's not, it's a good idea to just go back and say that was wrong or that's uncertain or there's debate about this Mm. i mean one round is good i think yeah okay yeah okay so news from the world of news no no (laughs) news from the world of darren and john yeah get it right Mm. okay so so, um well so Darren talks to school kids. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to say here which are of general interest and not just specific reference to me. Mm-hmm. I've I've gone to schools several times and spoken about dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, and uh, g- these opportunities have generally arisen due to my own kids sort of, uh, um, pr- you know, saying that, oh, my dad should come and talk to the school because he works on dinosaurs. Thanks, kids. Um, and you know what I learn every time that I do this it's that, it's that children, and in this particular case, this happened this week, I'm talking to year one students, which uh, the system in the UK, year one kids are like five, six years old, that kind of age. Um, they are being taught about the dinosaurs of the 1970s and 80s. So, you know, like your David Norman encyclopedia and you're sort of just the edge of walking with dinosaurs, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, so I did a prayer, you know, you go and talk to kids and to those people who are familiar with what I write about and, you know, what I say, don't go thinking that I'm go like heavy and technical on them. No, I do actually know how to talk to young children. I actually have created some of my own. And, um, so you take in a load of toys and you take in a load of kids books and you take in a PowerPoint presentation, which is basically just slideshow pretty pictures. Right. And, uh, so, Oh, this is Tyrannosaurus. It's really big. It could buy a car in half, you know, that kind of stuff. So you get to the bit where you talk about, you introduce predatory dinosaurs. And I have a slide of velociraptors. And I've got the v- Jurassic, I, li- I literally, you know, the same thing I've been doing for years, and I know you have as well. You Google the word, you Google velociraptor, and then you cry. <laughs> because <laughs> even today, it's still all Jurassic Park. 
like scaly things. I, I've, I've given several talks where I use the the uh, Ronald Reagan riding a Velociraptor into battle picture, which I quite like. <laughs> Do you know the one? There's like a giant tattered American flag and the Velociraptor. Velociraptor air quotes because it's not really Velociraptor, of course. But um, so you have this picture of old styly Velociraptors, a whole, a whole slide of them, and I say to the kids, "What's wrong with these pictures?" Thinking immediately that someone, perhaps my own daughter. <laughs> who was in the who was in in the audience? Someone might say, oh, "I got scaly skin. Where are the feathers?" But no, they say the teeth on that one are slightly larger than the teeth in the other ones. Or have they put the toes on back to front? Or that one's tail is up a little bit more than the others. Is the tail wrong? How do they know what color it was? Yeah. And I'm like, and after fifteen, you know, you're obviously trying to encourage interaction. After fifteen shout outs from the audience, I said, "What is on their skin?" And they're all talking about the color patterns of them. Do you see this? You know, this none of them. Now they're five-year-olds, you know, and I, I don't expect five-year-olds to be at all cognizant in the world of vertebrate paleontology. The point is that they're being taught about dinosaurs by teachers, and so at no point has anybody ever told them that. By the way, these more bird-like dinosaurs didn't look like this anymore. They, um, that was wrong. They're, they're fully feathered. So, you know, I said, no, these things should have feathers. And then you show them the fossils and say why we know they were feathered, which, are then, which then lead you into talking about birds and the fact that, you know, birds are dinosaurs. And if you look at the anatomy of living birds, this is really obvious. You know, I've got some really nice pictures of like ostrich hands and chicken hands. And, you know, an ostrich hand has got big claws on digits one and two. It's obviously three-fingered, you know, that kind of stuff. I always find it's dead easy to... Again, air quotes, convince people that birds are dinosaurs if this is a novel concept to them. But the point is, it is a novel concept and nobody's told them this. Yeah. And that bothers me. <laughs> it doesn't bother me that much, but I just think it's odd. It's like kids are being taught about dinosaurs at school and it's, they're not told. Yeah, it's amazing the lag on this stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You go so, and talk to people at a, you know, a gathering that doesn't include a bunch of vertebrate paleontologists and most of them have no idea that yeah <clears throat> and the same thing was related to dinosaurs or anything like that yeah so in fact my my older child will who now is 13 he was he told me at school that that in his experience of you know previous years he would um he would always be telling people stuff he learned off me about dinosaurs would be saying you know in class but did you know birds are dinosaurs you know birds are regarded as modern day dinosaurs and and everyone else like no you idiot <laughs> you're so stupid <laughs> whereas of course so poor will you know i feel, feel bad that he had to endure that but it's it's most of us that know this stuff i'll say most people that have got an up-to-date knowledge of you know biology or zoology in general not just vertebrate paleontology most people that know or, or, or are well informed in the world of science think that oh yeah Birds are dinosaurs yawn. Yeah, come on. <laughs> tell tell yeah. me something I didn't know. What, does the sun go around the earth as well? Um, but, um, yeah, no, you'd be surprised. It's not – it's almost like it's not mainstream. It isn't uh, mainstream, yeah. It's just not. <laughs> it's not even – yeah, it hasn't made it out of the little world of um, basically dinosaur enthusiasts of some sort. Yeah. Which, Which is, is why – here we come back to the whole Jurassic World thing, which is why something like Jurassic World, as I've just said in the new Tetsu article, and as both you and I have said online, is still, if you care about this stuff, I don't care about it that much, you know, but I still think it's, you know, if you want to have a realistic view of the world, then 
don't you wouldn't you rather things were right it's why things like movies are still quite important in terms of their portrayal of stuff because they have such a massive influence on um well what the public takes away from it it's their it's their only encounter with this yeah and also i think it sort of feeds into the notion of what people think evolution is and how good they think the fossil record is and stuff like this because the transition from basal dinosaurs to birds is actually pretty well represented now it's good i mean if you could show someone all the fossils they'd be amazed right of all the transitional forms between those two ends and yeah it's a shame that it's it's not out there just Mm. yeah no one seems to want to look or whatever i don't know yeah, and the Jurassic Park is responsible for this. Ruining our dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to look at a feathered velociraptor. It ruins it. Yeah, it makes me sick. Yeah. Crap. Stupid nerds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so that's that. Um, scholarly Research of the Anomalous Conference. It's a real catchy title. Has that got an acronym? S-R-A. SRAC. This is a meeting in Edinburgh. At the end of February, scholarly research of the anomalous conference, where a whole bunch of like um, uh, noted people involved in the investigation of the unexplained are meeting somewhere in Edinburgh. I don't know where they have in front of me, but the whole point is ongoing. I'm talking about um, I'm talking about sea monsters and cryptozoology, mm-hmm. but. I feel like I'm doing the same sort of thing that I've been doing for the last several years every time I've spoken about cryptozoology, which is more to do with the interpretation of um, the eyewitness data as it occurs in the literature. So it's not really about the eyewitness accounts. Now, you could say the eyewitness accounts has the raw pool of data is the only stuff we should be looking at if if we're trying to interpret evidence if we're trying to interpret that data what does it mean does it mean that people are really seeing undiscovered large animals does it mean they're they're misidentifying stuff or does it mean that they're lying and hoaxing and imagining things right that's the pool that's the primary pool of data but i'm interested in that but i'm also interested maybe even a little bit more interested in what people how they've interpreted it within the literature so again this ties in with what we did in the cryptozoologicon it ties in a little bit with stuff we've written about. I've written about speculative evolution, speculative biology. The fact that there's this rich literature where people have like taken, uh, you know, an imagined creature and then built on it. And we've we've covered this several times in the podcast before, haven't we? I mean, yeah. going all the way back to the episode we did whenever it was with uh, Blake Smith was that was that episode two or three? It was a really early one, wasn't it? But um. This whole idea of like a house of cards where people have built this this grandiose model and it's like if you just look at the just look at the the, the, the starting point, the initial pool of data, it's surprisingly bad and <laughs> Yeah, and much more varied than you'd think. It doesn't fit the patterns that the the um the superstructure yeah. would suggest it does, you know. The That's contradictory right, yeah. reports yeah. that have been sort of squished into making something consistent yes so exactly the point i mean exactly how i'm going to word this i mean obviously i won't know until i start preparing the presentation which i haven't done yet but but it makes me think that much of what we call and again this is sort of repeating what's already been the point's already been made but much of what we call cryptozoology much of what you find in the cryptozoology books is more of a kind of socio-psychological experiment it's more of a sort of like uh 
more of more of a more of a, like an investigation of ideas than it is an interpretation of evidence, which is making cryptozoology seem much of it more like a kind of yeah more like a, a sociological event than a truly interpretative zoological one. Yeah. But uh, well, this is increasingly uh, this is how. People are thinking. So certainly, well, certainly, people that re- that would regard themselves as anywhere on this kind of sceptical part of the spectrum. Um, and it does bother me that you know you you deal with people all the time that still just don't see things this way and are talking about talking about the the the, the proposed cryptids, you know, sea serpent kinds invented by Hoovermans or whatever, as if they are flesh and blood real things that we should have some faith in. So. Uh, yeah, like I say, I haven't, haven't presented the, the presentation. There's a couple of papers coming out of that stuff, actually, that I'm working on with other people. Um, so, uh, I've, I've written down frogs in big letters. <laughs> yeah, you have. Big letters. Frogs! <laughs> it should be clear why frogs is written down in big letters, if you've been on Tetrapod Zoology lately. And it's all as explained, it was explained in the last episode of the podcast and all is explained again in the birthday article today that basically there's been this big push to try and get to as many frogs as possible so that I achieve fair and appropriate taxonomic balance. And having totted up the numbers and drawn a little bar chart, I'm really, really angry. So angry. So angry. <laughs> Have you looked at the chart? No, I haven't looked at the chart. Okay, so at the bottom of that Tetsu birthday article, it's also my... Um, header banner thing on my Facebook page. Um, So when I started totting up the numbers of what's been covered during 2014 at Tezu, um, I was appalled to find that I think Lys amphibians, that's modern amphibians, Mm -hmm. frogs and toads, salamanders and Sicilians, I think they've been written about maybe three times in the year. And that's like, that's terrible. That's just awful. So, so I deliberately got through as I said this last time, didn't I? Got through as many frog and toad themed articles as I could before today, before twenty first of January. But that still meant that if you look at the graph, so we got thirteen articles appearing on list amphibians, but that's still beaten by mammals, sixteen articles, and birds, are fourteen articles. So. <laughs> It's like all that effort and time to try and bring this amphibian somewhere up to some level of balance. And oh, it just it's, really... So that's not balance for you. What is balance? How do you define balance? The, the, the groups that are not... So charismatic megafauna, mammals, birds, and to an extent fossil dinosaurs, non-bird dinosaurs, that's charismatic megafauna. They mustn't be in the lead. <laughs> they must be exceeded by little brown frogs and lizards. <laughs> and salamanders too, maybe. And then weird, weird fossil groups that typically get little coverage, like non-list amphibian and amniots and uh, non-mammalian. None. You synapsids. haven't written about them at all. No, non-mammalian synapsids aren't there either. They didn't get a single article, and I should have. I, I, this is, non-mammalian like, synapsids though can be charismatic me- megafauna. Can't oh they? yeah, well yeah, but the, 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 so where are they? Why aren't they represented here? It just really yeah. bothers me. So they don't even have a, they don't even have a name on the chart. No, that's because I recycled the one from last year. But they love it. They love a thing on their next year, even if they don't have any representation. It just really makes me angry. It's like <laughs> try so hard, but because I'm not thinking at the time. I don't. I don't sit there. and think. Oh, I must. For, for the purposes of balance, I must write an article on frogs. I write articles 
due to my own research interests or something that I think needs to be covered or something that's really captured my interest and I feel the urge to write about it. But yeah, again, look at it. Mammals and birds dominating the... Uh, oh. and, and, and yeah, listen, amphibians have only got... They only come third because, like, like I said in the Tezu article, because I cheated my own system pointlessly. <laughs> what an idiot. What was the reason for that? And just tried to get through as many as possible. So hang and, on, hang on. I'm trying to get this straight here. What you want to do is just write what you're interested in and then later, by happenstance, find out that you've got perfect taxonomic balance. You want the taxonomic yes. balance to come out of your interest perfectly naturally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not happening. So I'm going to so, have to cheat. But you, <laughs> so why don't you go the whole hog with cheating, make yourself up a little table yeah. and say, I've got to write this many articles on this and this many write articles on that. That's what I'm going to do. Yep. So what I said at the start of 2014 is that because exactly the same, exactly the same thing happened in 2013, I said, I'm, I'm annoyed that mammals and birds are so overrepresented compared to other groups. Yeah. So this year, 2014, is going to be the year of, you know, boring little frogs and little lizards. And uh, just... Think, you could write more about non-avian dinosaurs and, yeah. um, and pterosaurs. Yeah. And you know why I don't write and about other those? fossil reptiles. I mean, you just there's not that much on fossil reptiles here, is there? And do you, do you know why? Do you know why there isn't? There, why? there isn't that much on on non-bird dinosaurs and pterosaurs. Do you know why? Because they're too big and charismatic. No. Why? Other bloggers. Other bloggers. <laughs> Damn them, other bloggers. Damn them. Other bloggers. So I specifically won't write about. <laughs> I don't know. Is this wrong? <laughs> it's. I'm not no no I'm not going to write about you Tyrannosaurus because because ten other bloggers have already written about you. Yeah, but what I'd say is for taxonomic, you're not aiming for taxonomic balance for the whole world, are you? Because in that uh, case, you shouldn't be writing at all about birds, tetrapods, <laughs> yeah, or tetrapods. Indeed, uh, you've already yeah. defined tetrapods, mm. but should you? So you're you're aiming for taxonomic balance on Tet Zoo. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> It's so now, hard to know exactly how that would play out in terms of numbers. I mean, is this based on like numbers of species or Yeah, good point. Numbers um, well, yeah. of probable species over time? Because well, obviously we haven't discovered all the dinosaurs or pterosaurs or any fossil animals. No, I mean you'd expect uh, birds should be should be well out there with like approximately 10,000 extant species, never never mind the fossil ones. Amphibians is somewhere around about, I think, 5,800, 6,000, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mammals is somewhere around about 5,000. Squamates is somewhere around about, oh, I don't know, 7,000, 8,000, I think. So, um, nah, just, uh, just oh, makes me so cross. But yeah, no, I, 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 there's, I don't know. I can't, I can't really explain this, but there's something wrong that I don't write about things because other people are covering them. Because I sort of feel that... You know, a lot of people come to Tetrapods Orgy because cause I do, you know, write, work on dinosaurs and pterosaurs. But the fact that, to me, they seem so well served elsewhere in the blogosphere by other good bloggers and <laughs> bad bloggers as well. Mm. <laughs> Not mentioning any names. But, um, yeah, that sort of means I deliberately... Uh, I don't think people can write too much about pterosaurs at the moment. Well, people who aren't, um, mm. he, he shall not be named. Oh, don't. 
Yeah, we won't start on that. But yes, if everyone else was writing more about pterosaurs, that would be a good thing. Right. Um, that'll do from news from the world of Darren and John. Yeah. Um, so we move on to part of the show. We oh, you're not cool. even going to ask me whether I have any news. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Carry on. News. Yeah, <laughs> John. Nice. John. Do you have any news, John? Um, I don't really have any news. That's a lie. No, I've been. I'm back from America, where I've been working on a top secret project in Austin, Texas. Those of you who know about these things will probably be able to guess what that is, but I'll leave that up. There's up to other people to <laughs> guess at that. Um, I think that's it. That's my only news. <clears throat> you haven't done any sexy artwork lately, Scatellosaurus. Yeah, but that was <laughs> over a month ago. Oop. All right. Yeah. Still, still riffing on the. The uh, Ellie Kish kind of angle, yeah. The late, the late great Ellie Kish, yeah. Did you know there's a there's a Tetsu time, uh, um, cartoon of Eleanor Kish? It's an Eleanor Kish Tetsu crossover thing. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we covered this in previous episodes. But um, Eleanor Kish uh, was is it? Is a recently deceased paleo artist and uh, and yeah go go yeah. and listen to previous episodes all of the previous episodes but yeah. uh, uh, so John homages her work quite a lot yes right um okay yeah let's move on news from the world of news and I think we will <laughs> yeah you've put this uh, conquest of the skies you've put this in possibly in popular tat but. I think, yeah, let's put it in world news for the world of news. Yeah, okay. So there's a TV, I think a three-part television series on Sky One uh, produced by, I think, Atlantic Productions. Uh, Conquest of the Skies presented and written by David Attenborough. Um, and it's it just finished. And uh, it's meant to be about that, the evolution of, well, the conquest of the skies, so the evolution of flying things. There might have been some stuff in it about insects. There must have been, but that must have been in the first episode, and I think I missed it. Um, I certainly watched it because I wanted to see what they were going to say about uh, the interesting animals, pterosaurs, bats, and birds. And um, they um, did a whole section on pterosaurs, Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, what are they going to say? And this is the same bunch of people who made sky monsters, flying monsters, which is a pterosaur-based documentary, which... While I've no doubt it was entertaining and probably did well in terms of, you know, uh, audience and, uh, you know, revenue and such, to people who know pterosaurs, it's not remembered fondly. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it had some big, big names in the world of pterosaurs kind of advising. Uh, I think Dave Unwin actually appears in it. Um, and I know Mark Witten was, uh, an, I think, an advisor or a consultant or something. But um, it's some of the animals in it look pretty bloody awful. There's a Dimorphodon, which is an an early Jurassic English uh, like deep headed uh, uh, pterosaur from uh, the south coast of England. There's there's an alleged species from the United States as well, but I don't know whether that it really is Dimorphodon or not. But um, but their 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 thing that was meant to be Dimorphodon is kind of like a scaly zombie. It's mm. a, it's a shrink wrapped kind of monster, and it just doesn't look good, and it performs really badly the way it looks and everything. So that was kind of weird. And then they feature 
uh, I think Quetzalcoatlus, so one of the biggest pterosaurs ever. And uh, I don't remember that as being too bad, although it does look a bit kind of skeletal and uh, it's not really kind of furry enough. But they also have, um, I think, Tupendactylus, one of these short-headed Cretaceous pterosaurs, but also a group called the Tabajarids, um, famous for having like big crested skulls. And they followed, in this documentary, they followed the advice of uh, a well-known paleontologist called Sankar Chatterjee. Uh, and um, they had it basically as a trimaran. So this animal was shown as being able to sit on the surface of the water with its wings sticking up above the water. And then the wind kind of blows it along like a, like a trimaran using the crest and the, the two wings allowing it to uh, propel itself across the surface of the water which would clearly be more efficient and uh, wiser than flying, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> basically, this is... <laughs> you don't have to be an expert in pterosaurs or aerodynamics or biology to think this is a pretty ridiculous idea. Now, that's okay, you know, ridiculous ideas. Animals do stupid things all over the place, right? But in terms of, like, what is the support for this and how is it supposed to work? Well, anyone that's looked into it finds copious problems with the the hydrodynamics and the aerodynamics and the everything dynamics of the <laughs> it's just the stupidest thing ever and I this whole idea that pterosaurs might have used their head crests as sails or I don't know as propellers or rudders or something I mean there's there's a lot of problems with these with these ideas and um, it was very surprising that they Made it into a modern documentary, indeed. Yeah, and it was promoted as if it was the best explanation for. At least I, that's my recollection of it. I mean, I've only seen. Hang the on, are we talking about sky monsters here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm saying sky monsters bad. Yeah, sky so monsters did, bad. Yeah. So, so when they did conquest the skies, did they include the same kind of stuff? Well, it wasn't as bad. It was. Mu- it was much better. I mean, their their Quetzalcoatlus model looks all right. Was half decent. Their dimorphodon was different, so they didn't use the same dimorphodon, and they actually had uh, a dimorphodon clinging to the side of a tree, and they showed it flying, and they showed it as a kind of fairly heavy-bodied flapping flyer, because um, they do these things where they have the prehistoric animals like flying around David Attenborough's head and stuff, which I always find a little bit twee, to be honest, but um, yeah, it, it wasn't that bad. Um, I tweeted throughout, I live tweeted throughout the thing to talk about what they showed because some of the stuff they, they showed was great. Um, and then the birdie bit, they actually, he, he went and spoke to Xu Xing, the IVPP in China, and um, they showed, you know, like Microraptor and stuff and they had little Microraptor come to life and, and they had little Microraptor running around the lab and everything, climbing up shelves and stuff. And again, that's, yeah, come on. That's, uh, okay, it, looked, it didn't look that bad. And... Uh, they spoke about the idea that it was pretty up to date. I mean, you know, David Attenborough obviously is, you know, he talks to the right people often and uh, gets up to date information. And was talking about the idea that the that complex feathers may have initially evolved within the context of display, perhaps, but that even kind of in quotes half a wing may have been useful for clambering up sloping surfaces and for slowing descent, and that and that simple filamentous fibers were in place in theropod dinosaurs before complex feathers evolved so that's all pretty much up you know that's pretty kosher that matches with what most of us what most of us think the evidence shows um so i didn't think that was that bad and then also they did a bit on bats and that was pretty good as well some great footage of uh, slow flying 
uh, fruit bats, some brilliant stuff of Kalugos or Cabagos, whatever you want to call them, the so-called flying lemurs. That was that was just uh, incredible. Some of the footage they showed of those things. They're so weird. Um, so, um, oh, and then the stuff on birds. They did a whole episode on modern birds, and it was it was great. But I always feel with these things, we've been kind of spoilt because you see things that are amazing. Many of us have now seen them on TV so many times, or even seen them in real life, that it's like, well, it's amazing, but yeah, I've seen it a lot of times before. So, for example, stooping peregrines, you know, when peregrines drop from the sky at a couple of hundred miles per hour, that's just ridiculous and incredible. But we've all seen that by now. It's like, that's not new to anyone. Murmurations of starlings, these flocks, you know, forming these shapes before they go to roost. Again, that's incredible that every one of us has all seen that so many times before. And swans in flight that have been printed on people and followed them close behind. Again, that's amazing. But, you know, we've all seen it before. So the problem is if your whole documentary is just based on on those things, like I say, we're all spoiled. We sort of want to see... Yeah. Show me something I haven't seen before. Yeah, your nature. Come on, impress me. <laughs> I don't want to see a peregrine jumping from the sky at 240 miles an hour. I want to see... 600 miles per hour. <laughs> Let's kick it up a notch. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. yeah. So, to watch the series if you're interested in in this kind of stuff, it was. So you, you so your your notion would be not too bad then. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Oh, so That's unusual right. for a modern documentary. Normally, well, exactly. Don't That's even bother. Yeah, because a lot of these things, th- that was my concern. The the flying monsters, the, the previous Terrasaur one was pretty bad, and some of their other things have been pretty bad, so I was yeah. expecting it to be pretty bad. The the thing where David Attenborough um, did like, he did a kind of night in the museum thing, at uh, the Natural History Museum. And again, that's by the same bunch of people, Atlantic Productions. Um, that was okay, but there were bits in it that were like, no, that's just, that's not okay to have that. For example... The idea behind this documentary is that David Attenborough goes, he's, he, it's as if he's been locked in the museum at night and he's wandering around at night, you know, going into the storage areas and putting in open drawers and everything. And he'll find an amazing specimen and then he'll tell you a bit about, you know, what, it, what the animal, what, what it's from and what it means and what the animal was like when it was alive. And there were a few where it's like he'd latched onto a specific kind of, popular aspect of this creature and it was just misleading the one i have in mind in particular is uh he he, he was looking at a tooth of gigantopithecus okay this large bodied member of the orangutan lineage that lived in india and china and adjacent countries very long lived it, it was uh, t- couple of species known from the late Miocene to the Pleistocene. So this animal's around for more than 15 million years, or species of it are anyway. And he said, he basically said, that this animal is the Yeti. And um, they reconstructed a Gigantopithecus, Gigantopithecus, however you want to say it, I don't know, and um, had it wandering around the museum. And it was just an abominable snowman or like a Bigfoot. It was just done as like a big hairy man. And it's like, well, hold on. This is, we know this is, a, well, we think this is a member of the orangutan lineage. And yeah, there's some possibility of bipedality there for sure. But the default 
exp- the, the the assumption about this animal is that it's predominantly quadrupedal. It may be knuckle walking or or fist walking or something. It's probably going to be doing that more than it is going to be like a full time biped. And uh, and then they just showed it with like human like proportions, and even showed that famous um, uh, what's the name of the photograph? The famous footprint photograph yeah. from the uh, Hillary expedition, which. Uh, as if, as if that's like a valid piece of evidence somehow related to this case, whereas in actual fact the the Hillary photograph is almost definitely faked. I've written about it on Tetsu a long time ago. There's good reasons for thinking that it's faked. Not just that I reject it straight away because it's supposed to be a Yeti footprint, but it just does not look like a real footprint at all. And uh, yeah. Hillary was a notorious practical joker, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> also, tracks in snow are notorious for melting in certain ways to expand them and change them. So, yeah. you know, if you get yeah. a track in a snow, in, in the snow, there's no way of telling exactly what the original shape was. You can't tell whether you're looking at the original shape or, or a expansion of the original well, shape or something like that. Yeah, that, that's, that's all, that's all valid. People have said that in connection with this, with this track. I've, I've gone to, I've found the, the Tetsu article cause I really, I want to remember the details now, but the reasons for, um, being, for being ultra skeptical about it are um, more to do with the actual the actual shape of the actual footprint so when a primate leaves a track in snow or any other soft substrate you expect to see you know from your own footprints you expect to see like rounded hollows formed by the lower surfaces of the foot but the the um it's it's on melon Menlung Glacier, mm. uh, Eric Shipton and Michael Ward, I was mentioning Hillary there, which is completely wrong, Shipton and Ward, they photographed this thing in 1951. You look at the shape of the track, it's got these like great big chunks of snow and like sharp um, sort of like uh, dug in impressions in the bottom of the foot, of the bottom of the marking and the edges are ultra crisp. It just doesn't look anything like what the soft compliant surface of a primate foot it doesn't look like the mark that a primate foot could leave in um in snow it's also in a really weird place as well and the and the the, the toe impressions there's a whole bunch of reasons to be really skeptical about it yeah. uh, even even before you're skeptical of the existence of yetis in general anyway but um and there's a there's a larger photograph which you often don't see there's an uncropped version that shows the footprint and adjacent to it is another hollow that's not footprint shaped, but it's just a hollow, and it's got some kind of vague similarity to the one that looks like a foot, like the way the snow is broken. So, yeah, I'm going off a tangent here, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, totally. this is a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> tangent. So, so, yeah. So, Conquest of the Skies, give it a watch, and you won't cry too much. Well, that was a tangent you... within a tangent, that was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right, let's move on to cash for questions then. Okie doke. So we'll skip over the extinction of that uh, Australian mammal because that's not important, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't care about that. <laughs> Maybe next no time. time. No time for extinction. No time. Mammals. Okay. Right. Um, <coughs> I'm going to oh, yeah, do two minute these... rule. Two minute rule. Two, two minute rule. <gasps> John. Well, we I think some of mention... these people might want more than two minutes. We forgot to mention that there was there's a significant paper that's just appeared in print what would you say is the most important thing that could possibly happen in this current newfangled day and age of usb sticks and <laughs> wi-fi well i would say what would be really amazing is if there was some sort of tape here 
that may or may not be a new species because it looks pretty much identical to another type of tapir, if it is indeed a different sort of tapir at all. Yeah. What if I was That's what I would you... say would really get me going if there was, if was this sort of taxonomic, <clears throat> low-level taxonomic wrangle about... Wrangle. <clears throat> about tapirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what if I was to tell you that... that would you believe Teddy Roosevelt shot exactly, exactly such a creature sometime around about 19... I don't know, something, 21 or something? Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, back to cash. Yes, cash for questions. Okay, come on. Yes. I'm going to take these in reverse order. Marie Buttes. Oh, are we going to do this one? We're going to come back to that one. Okay. Because it's, it's a good question, but it's a little bit scary. Right. So, so, what order do you want to take these in? Uh, Rio, well, do you want to start us with a nice, easy one? Yeah, that's, that's good fun. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Joseph, Joseph Crawley asks, Darren seems to have a burning hatred for the film Rio, and I'm curious to find out why. Is it possible to have a hate-filled rant on why this film is terrible? Well, I'm, now, sure, I'm sure it is, Joseph. So, here it is. Here we go. Thank you for your question, Joseph. Yeah. I hate the film Rio. It's awful. <laughs> and this isn't because I hate children's films or hate CG movies or hate films with like talking birds in them because, no, that's just not true. But Rio is terrible, really awful. And uh, so why do I hate it? Number one, that song at the start, just hate it. It's terrible. Okay. Number two, now I should like Will I Am because, you know, Will I Am is like quite a uh, a science proponent. So, Good on you, Will I am. I respect your science proponency. But his character in this movie, which just plays to every single stereotype about in terms of like accent and ethnicity and stuff, is just oh I just just really can't handle it. Yeah. Okay. The little birds. There's like cardinal type birds and finchy type birds, sort of imaginary parrot type birds. They're sort of based on real things, but they just look ridiculous. They're like really bad. There's like a there's like a stereotypical. I don't know the film that well. I've never watched it like all the way through. See, <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is meant to be me ranting now. But this is okay. a thing. This is a thing about kids. Mm. Like they watch these bloody films. They're on in the background. Like my workspace, unfortunately, is continuous with a general living space. So I hear these movies and I sort of see snippets of them. And children watch films again and again and again. So after like seven times of listening to Rio and that song at the start, uh, I thought the characters were the, the characters were really bad. I mean, the um, there's a blue parrot in it who I don't know. He might be called Rio. I don't really remember. But he's 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 voiced by the guy who plays Mark Wahlberg in the fate. Not ah! <laughs> Zuckerman. I meant I meant uh, the guy who plays isn't the. That Damon, um, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Matt Damon. We ever spoke about Team America. We really should. I love Team America. Yeah, I'm not sure how relevant it is, but yeah. Um, America. Okay, that gave me enough time to Google and get some, uh, get some, um, some of the. Oh my God, Anne Hathaway's in it. Anne Hathaway does. She must do the voice for the the girl McCaw then, because you know she's also in our favorite film. Interstellar. Mm. She plays Dr. Lady. Why did you say our favourite film? Because, because it would have made sense if that was sarcastic. <laughs> but it wasn't really sarcastic. We both gave it fairly solid ratings. Oh. 
I miss, I thought we both hated it. I can't. I can't remember. I don't remember. I remember these things. Okay, maybe. You okay. Did you hate it more than I did? Maybe. Maybe that's. No, it. I think I. I really disliked it after the magic bookshelf. Yeah, scene. I think we both agreed that it went off the rails. But yeah. Anyway, but you disliked it from earlier. Earlier on. Uh, anyway, okay, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, okay, so actually the macaw in it is called Blue, which is spelled B-L-U, and he's voiced by Jesse Eisenberg, well known for the Facebook movie, which I, I actually do really like. Will I Am, Jamie Foxx. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, oh God, it's just awful. I don't know what else to say. The characters are terrible. The storyline's awful. The... There's a there's an evil McCaw in it, and he's not too bad. What's the best uh, thing about the film? <laughs> uh, the the fact that the evil McCaw eats other birds because <laughs> he's so awful. <laughs> that's how bad he is. That's um, pretty good. I like that. Yeah. Uh, that's pre- basically all I can remember. So it's just uh, I just there can't. you go. I need to- <laughs> cutting insight. <laughs> Bad film is bad. <laughs> I put a lot of thought into this. <laughs> so, um, it's just terrible. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's, let's move on to another question then. And the, the human characters in it, they're terrible too. And the whole thing the, where they go to the carnival and say, oh God, it's just terrible. <laughs> so, right. So there you go. So that's, I hope you got your money's worth, uh, <laughs> Joseph. Um, yeah, and I believe there's a sequel which I won't watch. Mm. So, what about Rio a prequel? Two. Would you watch a prequel? <laughs> I might. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on then. Uh, Christian Jewell has another question. Many time cash for question of Christian Jewell mm. is the ability of salamanders to regenerate their limbs adaptive, i.e., does it confer a significant survival benefit, or is it just some weird side effect of their development? So, what do you think? I think yes, it is adaptive, yeah, and that it's a uh, it's a definite like advantageous thing in um, aquatic predators that get bitten by other aquatic things, mm. by bigger aquatic predators. So, what happens to you if you're a salamander? Well, fish and other salamanders bite your legs off. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, this is not unique to salamanders. It, in fact, it has recently been demonstrated in a Paleozoic temnospondyl, suggesting that it's a primitive ancestral trait for the group of tetrapods that gave rise to lysamphibians. And uh, given that a lot of these temnospondyls, not all of them, but a lot of them are also like aquatic predators that are living alongside uh, bigger, more formidable aquatic predators, then... Uh, yeah, I, I think this is like a sensible adaptive thing. And um, it, But on the other hand, it, it is obviously combined with incredible regenerative abilities they have because you know that people have f- found that axolotls and other salamanders can, can regrow like substantial portions of internal organs like hearts, livers, kidneys and things as well. Mm. So... So, they're, so it's kind of a combination of both aspects to um, Christian's suggested explanations there. Yes, it, it's definitely a, like an advantageous survival thing that it would be like a good idea to keep this in your evolutionary history. But it's also a side effect of 
some incredible regenerative ability that they have and which other tetrapod groups don't have. Um, and yeah, as to why they do have these regenerative abilities, well, standard answer. <laughs> Ooh, genetics. <laughs> um, yeah, they've got, so, they've got this. Yeah, I, I find <coughs> that I actually think this question's backwards to my mind. Why don't other animals have this ability? It seems so useful. Mm. You know, I... I, I, the only thing I can think of is that it comes at a co- some sort of significant cost. Um, that it's just not worth it for um, other tetrapods to have this ability. But you know, it you doesn't know, come up that you lose a limb, but you'll still survive long enough that yeah. it's worth trying to regrow it. Well, we know that. So I would say that we know that other tetrapods and other animals in general have evolved the ability to regenerate lost things. We know yeah. that you know tails can be regrown in certain lizards, limbs can be regrown in insects and arachnids. Um, so, so this kind of thing, it's like different lineages of, of animals have tried to have evolved this all over the place. Yeah. But in terms, none of them seem to have the real incredible hocus pocus abilities that lys amphibians and maybe temnospondyls have mm. why is that what is it that the that amphibians have less amphibians plus these tennis models what is it they do that's different from other tetrapods and there's an answer to that and i reckon it's to do with their um metamorphosis mm-hmm. so other tetrapod groups don't go through a part of their life where they can basically you know turn everything to mush and, and move cells around and grow whole new limb buds and everything so to give a proper answer here, again, as so often with these questions, you'd need to be, you know, you need to be extremely knowledgeable about the way their genetics works. Yeah. But and we're not quite there yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I wonder if that's the answer. Is it that they've got some, you know, they've got like I don't know a crazy number of stem cells or unusually mobile stem cells, or it's easy for them to. As soon as a limb is destroyed, there's some, you know, the 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 tissue edge is, uh, the, the the like the Hox genes automa- are, are programmed to automatically rebuild it because that's what they do in these animals. As soon as a limb bud is exposed to the outside of the body, then then you know yeah. through the activation of Hox genes or such. You, you see what I'm getting at? It's a vague wishy washy answer, but I reckon it's something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be one of the most complicated. Um sort of genetics development questions around right in ter- in terms of uh, the sorts of things we deal with so yeah hooga booga, mm. booga genetics yeah. but i do find it interesting that yeah so you've got a lot of problems right you've got to be able to not bleed to death when a significant portion of your body is ripped off and that that alone is probably quite a tricky thing to evolve easier oh, yeah. easier for smaller things i guess because of Blood can coagulate faster. I don't know. Does that work? Yeah, probably. Surface area. Yeah. But once you're over a certain size, that might just not work anymore. You have to do something drastic to seal off your blood vessels and stuff. Well, this this cool. We, it might also be linked to the fact that this is a group of animals that's got like the one of the lowest metabolisms of any group of of tetrapods, certainly. So the amount of, say, blood they're moving around the system and the speed at which they're moving blood around the system is low and slow compared to that of many other groups. So, yeah, they're not going to bleed out. They don't have much blood to begin with. They don't have high... Uh, their o- demands for oxygen and stuff aren't as high as those 
of other tetraplegics, plus they're often relying on cutaneous respiration. So theoretically, can they even get by with, I don't know, you know, the... Uh, what I'm thinking is they don't have to rely on the heart pumping as much blood around because they don't need the, oxy- oxygen the oxygen is the diffusing. Blood. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, in which case, so a combination of several things there. Also, infection. You've got a, you know, um, I'm thinking, how often would an animal die of infection if a significant part of your body gets ripped off? You've got a big uptake from the environment. I would think it's incredibly common to die of infection once you've got a significant injury. Yeah. Um, and in maybe there's special like ways that. of dealing with that as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think it's it's some kind of like developmental plasticity, mm. which is which is, seems to be a, a general feature of these animals that makes them different from other tetrapods. They're able to like just crazily regrow stuff because that's the way their bodies work. That's a different thing about their body from most of the tetrapods. The fact they've got like yeah low metabolism, low oxygen demands, the fact that they can be cut in half and still live due to uh, without being chauvinistic towards amphibians they are anatomically unsophisticated compared to you know groups with bigger more complex bodies uh contributes to it i would think um but and finally the last layer on this the fact that it is like a sensible adaptation to inherit or um develop and maintain you know because because if you're living in we do not walk around in our day-to-day life and we're, we're not a danger, you know, even, even if we're living, you know, in our, the way we're meant to live, in air quotes, the sort of non-domesticate human life. If you're wandering around on the savannah, animals are not coming up and just biting your limbs off on a regular basis. But <laughs> yeah. if, you're a, if you're a newt or a frog or whatever in a pond, your toes and limbs are in danger of quite often being bitten <laughs> off. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the kind of... Um What's the word? Hit and run type of take a bite and swim off. Just yeah. you know, it's not something that really happens a lot on land, is it? <laughs> no, I'm sure, no. I'm sure you'll think of some examples, but there yeah, are examples, but, but it's yeah. but it's very very rare, and it's yeah, uh, this this yeah. The, uh, I don't want to start talking about dinosaurs because yeah. the, the the Greg Paul um, land shark hypothesis, but uh, but yeah, no, it's just it's just rare in general. The idea that Something might run up to something else and take a take a chunk of flesh and run off. Yeah, um, yeah. where was I reading about this? Well, did we cover this before? Because we were talking about animals being parasites because they're just taking chunks out of other animals and then letting the the thing they bite off grow back. But um, we might have. I don't remember. I'm, I'm sure. As you we know, did. I don't ever remember anything. So, um, well, I think that's an answer, isn't it? I certainly think that is. So yes, hope you hope you're happy with that, Christian, and thank you for the question. Right. So yeah. I think what we'll do is this big one, and then the other ones we'll move to next week because we've been going for a while now. Okay. So Dallas Krenzel from last week. Last week. Why do we say that? Last episode. <laughs> That's where he's from. Dallas is from last week. Last week. That's where he's from. Yeah. Why do you think archosaurs replaced synapsids in the Triassic as the dominant tetrapod fauna? Obviously, the Permian extinction has evolved, but cynodonts, dicynodonts, and... 
Therocephalians each do reasonably well in the earlier Middle Triassic. What insights from early Archosaur and Stem Archosaur history are there to inform this transition? In what ways are Archosaurs better? Well, they are more awesomer. <laughs> they just are better, aren't they? Yeah. So, it's a good question. Thank you for the question. And so, Dallas already addresses some of the key um, things that, you know, I would think we would have to mention in an answer. So, the first thing is that, so why do we see this apparent turnover? Non-mammalian synapsids versus archosaurs and other archosauriforms. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, the main the main kind of like controlling background thing here, which Dallas mentions, is the Permo-Triassic extinction event. So you've got like a whole load of really cool, big-bodied, um, ecosystem-dominating non-mammalian synapsids or stem mammals, whatever you want to call them, paramammals, protomammals. We did this before, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, these, yeah, and they're they're all killed off, pretty much all killed off by the end Permian event, which is complex and mysterious, and various things seem to have, you know been at play at the same time contributing to this devastating mass extinction event and then the the non-mammalian synapses that come through on the other side are not so big bodied and not so awesome and not so good at controlling ecosystems so like dicynodonts for example dicynodonts famously survive as well mostly as a single taxon lystrosaurus which okay it or a close relative does then give rise to it a big-bodied radiation during the, the later part of the Triassic. Um, and the non-mammalian synapsids, they don't really get going in the Triassic. Um, the, the, the other groups, like, uh, yeah, uh, cynodonts and whichever other groups survive, they, uh, they, they just don't evolve big body size. Again, they're sort of like small to middling. Mm. So, so archosauriforms kind of get to take over because of a mass extinction event and knocks out possible competitors <clears throat> and right from the start of the uh, in the earlier stages of the triassic so we're talking about something like 250 million years ago ish 245 million years ago that sort of time frame we've got big bodied rausukians and erythrosuchids and rausukians seem to be early members of the croc lineage erythrosuchids are outside crown archosauria outside the croc bird clade so they are non-archosaurian archosauriforms. Um, yeah, it seems that these groups take over the big-bodied terrestrial predator niche from big-bodied predatory non-mammalian synapsids from really early on in the Triassic. So you've got to imagine that in the late Permian, you've got the first archosauriforms evolving and they're not particularly big they're like you know less than a meter long that kind of size semi-terrestrial maybe semi-amphibious generalist predators but then their competitors are knocked out of the way in this permo-triassic extinction event then in the earliest triassic so a lot of like complex ecosystems have been complex animal communities have been devastated you're left with a handful of species and really simple communities uh, this based on data from well all around the world i mean a lot of work's been done recently in russia but also based on all the stuff they know from south africa and um uh, north america and elsewhere as well there's now these like simple faunal um dynamics going on and it seems that archosauriforms radiate very rapidly in the very earliest Triassic into 
you know, a lineage leading to crown oxels, which then rapidly diversifies into crocline oxels and birdline oxels. So it seems that you've got the roots of the modern dinosaur bird radiation and the croc radiation. You've got that happening right really early on in the in the Triassic, and pretty quickly members of some of those members of some of those groups, and in particular crocline oxels um, and related lineages, they they do become big terrestrial predators. And then once they do, they seem to then pretty much stay in that role for uh, most of the uh, most of the Triassic, mm. all the way up to, of course, then you've got the end Triassic extinction event where crocline oxals and non-oxorian oxoriforms like erythrosuchids, they are made extinct, and then it's dinosaurs replacing them after that. So, so I'm saying it's kind of default that's put them in place as the, in quotes, you know, sort of rulers of terrestrial ecosystems. But what is it about oxoriforms, including oxors, that means that the surviving, smaller-bodied, non-mammalian synapsid lineages, what is it that stops the non-mammalian synapsids? You know what? <laughs> I don't think you need to say non-mammalian synapsids. Just say synapsids. No, can't Why? do it. <laughs> because when I say synapsids, that includes yeah. mammals. So what? We know mammals aren't around then. It doesn't matter. Just say synapsids. Oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. Okay. <laughs> You're not specifically trying to exclude mammals. It's okay. Mammals evolve from them later. That's all right. Just it's say okay, synapsids. Darren. You can say it's you can okay. just say synapses. It's okay. Oh, God. Oh, all these years. I need to take a drink. Okay. See, um, so, well, why then? I mean, so why aren't archosauriforms... Why are archosauriforms then dominating things over synapsids? Hmm. I mean, non-mammalian synapsids. No. Well, <laughs> it's been it's it's been suggested that archosauriforms would have had an advantage in the um, kind of uh, the arid Pangaean supercontinent, like semi-desertified uh, global climate. Yeah. Because being reptiles, they excrete their urea as paste. They don't need to rely on water so much to produce liquid urine. Um, and that they're generally, you know, they're gnarly skinned and scaly skinned and they're better able to cope with desiccation. People are kind of throwing these ideas out there. And if you're going to come up with an adaptive explanation, that's I think that's the only thing you can think of. You sort of the implication that archosauriforms and reptiles in general are, again, in quotes, better at dealing with a Triassic hothouse dry world than are synapsids. But that whole idea, I think that's still that is still kind of like the general sort of textbook idea, the mainstream idea. But I think that hinges on a load of assumptions that synapsids, see, that non-mammalian synapsids are similar more similar to mammals in terms of, you know, physiological, yeah. physiology and stuff. Well, that they're, they're similar to mammals. So, for example, the idea that they have to, um, you know, rely on water to excrete urea and that they're not as, they're not as good in the heat as, as archosaurs. But, no, I just think these are really, really flawed because... I don't know, as a as a sort of huge generalization about mammals, say the average mammal, maybe that's right. But if we're talking about synapsids that are living in a, you know, they're going to be adapted for living in a Triassic 
super mega desert world if that's where they you know that's obviously where they're living well they're gonna have xeric adaptations xeric with an x they're gonna have adaptations for this kind of lifestyle as well who says they're going to be relying on loads of water to excrete urine you know they're probably going to be like as dry adapted as there are mammals that live in deserts today that produce like you know treacle like urine or or you know hardly release any any water at all when they excrete urea and are you know tremendously resistant to the rigors of sunlight and temperature and stuff so so this whole idea that archosauriforms are inherently better physiologically for this for this triassic world i don't buy and it also hinges on the assumption that the Pangean continent, the Pangean like climate, Pangea is this supercontinent that exists at the time. I'm sure most people know that. The idea that it's all one constant like Tatooine style endless dune field, and of course it's not. We, we've got loads of evidence showing that, you know, like any time in history, just about that the world is complicated and there are all kinds of environments. You know, there are, there are forests and they might be arid forests. There are semi-arid forests. There are also swamps and, you know, there are rivers around the edges of this supercontinent. And the animals often come from those kinds of environments. They're not living out literally in dune fields and deserts. Um, so any habitat, you know, there are, there are like amphibian things living at this time in this world. It's, and there are fish. Yeah. <laughs> fish in a desert world. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Amazing. Desert <laughs> so, fish. There's a fish. There's kind of coastlines and there's wind. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I am skeptical of any idea that archosauriforms are going to be doing better in this world because of fundamental go team reptile kind of yeah thinking. Like a lot of these questions, I don't think it's answerable because I don't think. Without going back, even even if we could observe it all happening, I think we wouldn't know the answer, right? I think it's really it's difficult to see what's going on at an ecological level and a adaptive level. It's just so difficult to see that stuff that I don't think we're ever going to answer it for a lot of this stuff in the fossil record. It's very much like the um, pterosaurs um, losing diversity in the Cretaceous. Well, well why? We, I just don't think we're ever going to know that either. Mm. Um. So, there's no answer. I, is my opinion. Yeah. I, well, yes, I would. Ag- I absolutely agree with that. And I would think that if you were back in Anisian times or whatever, you know, you were living in the middle of Lake Triassic and looking at faunas where there are big archosaurs or archosauriforms living alongside these last surviving lineages of non-mammalian synapsids it would be like being in the living world and seeing so you can go to a place and you'll see like a fauna dominated by big mammals but living alongside big mammals are for example big snakes and big monitor lizards and big turtles and you're not thinking how look at those turtles and monitor lizards they're losers they're like gonna die no they're doing what they do in the ecosystem and they're doing a different thing often at smaller body size from big bodied mammals but um you know, these are animals that live alongside one another and are doing different things. And let's say all the mammals were wiped out and monitor lizards weren't. Well, maybe hypothetically, you know, squamazoic again, mm. but maybe hypothetically you could say, ah, oh, well, now the monitor lizards can come into their own. And maybe then you'd get like, you know, elephant sized monitor lizards evolving and stuff. I would think that much of the Triassic world was like that. It was these synapsid lineages didn't have the ecological opportunities to like evolve the same kind of body sizes and the same control of ecosystems they didn't play the same role in ecosystems that they did in the permian um 
because that just didn't happen. Maybe partly because archosauriforms were now top dogs in the ecosystems um, or, you know, whatever. It just didn't happen because it just didn't happen. They were doing other jobs. But I don't think it's to do with one group fundamentally being superior to the other one. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of, I think, inertia in um, groups dominating large sections of a yeah. ecosystem. Where, yeah, you know, yeah. It's just difficult to displace something that's already there. So this this all stems back to a giant tumultuous turnover at the Permo-Triassic, well, the Permo-Triassic event. Hmm. Thing, things are turned on their head and... Um, I think we I think yeah. we've kind of covered Yeah, that's all there is to say about stuff. that. So there you go, Dallas. No answer. Yeah. <laughs> no answer for you. I think that's We'll exactly take your cash it. though. <laughs> it's cash for questions, well, it's, not cash for answers. So we have just said back to Dallas exactly what he said in the question anyway. Yeah. So uh, um in but so in what ways are Arkansas better? Well we just kinda of, you know, I try to say what people have. I mean, personally, of course, I know Arkansas better because I'm an Arkansas. I have an Arkansas bias. But um, I'm not really sure that there are... It's like, you know, you you, you think of any group of animals, what makes them better than than others? There's uh, better quotes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's all much of a muchness. Yes, there are advantages here and disadvantages there. Yeah, Yeah, I guess occasionally you'll see something where there's a limit, you know, the, the, the animal, a lineage has gone down a path where they're, they're lacking things, they've lost things that would make it very difficult to radiate back into other niches. I'm trying to think of good examples. Well, it's hard to imagine a world pop, repopulated by snakes, for example. You know, it just seems they're, they're, so, they're so odd and so specialised in many ways for lo- locomotory sort of things that... It's hard to imagine them getting back to being, I don't know, large running grazers, for example, (laughs) (laughs) or something like this. Um, But when you've still got relatively generalized body plans like synapsids and um, archosauriforms back in the Triassic, then, you know, you can do pretty much anything with that. So, yeah, I don't think there's an answer there in terms of limitation or it'd be too difficult to radiate from the position they'd got themselves into. So there you go. That's it. Yep. Let's wrap Back it up. Back of the net. Back <laughs> of the net. It's a sporting reference. Sporting, yes. I know sports, me. Yes, we're very much into this sporting thing, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay, let's wrap it up then. Oh, we're not going to do that one then? No, I thought we'd do them next week. Okay. Next right. episode, I mean episode. Next episode, episode, because we we've been talking for ages. So we have, we yeah. have, and okay. Uh, what, what do you want to start? Uh, where do they find you on the internet? Okay, I run a blog called Tetrapod Zoology, currently hosted at scientificamerican.com. Today is Tetrapod Zoology's ninth birthday, so thank you for the birthday wishes. And yep. Um, there's there's an expanded Tetzuniverse, which has uh, arisen in 2014. So if you're really interested in Tetzbold Zoology and all the stuff and trappings, then go and check out the Tetzu Wiki at wiki... 
www.tetzoo.com. Wow, you got it right. (laughs) It's brilliant. I'm I'm using this on a regular basis, the wiki, and uh, it needs expanding. There's there's a and I've said this on Tetchpods Audio already, but I'll repeat it here. It suffers from a lot of uh, spam accounts. People setting up spam accounts. So you already installed a capture. Yeah. To stop that, and it did for a while, but again, it's swamped. I mean, how does that happen? Do they get around capture or something? Yeah, they or? Do. Robots wow. can read captures. Scary. So it's flooded. So uh, also, what they do is they get real people to read them. Uh, these farms of you know, like people just reading captures and just typing it in, and the bot then takes that answer back to the page. And wow. Yeah, wow. it's really sophisticated. That's why it's virtually... It's really hard. We could turn it into an invitation-only wiki. Yeah, don't do that. I mean, people could email and ask whether they can join or something like this. But yeah. No, we want it to be open. So it's it's fronted by predominantly by Cameron McCormick. So well done, Cameron. And uh, he's he works hard to keep on top of all those spam accounts, but it's it's uh, scary. Yeah. And we should also mention that uh, our friends John Termel and Alberta Claw produce Tetsu Time, which is at time.tetsu.com. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm on fire. <laughs> Darren <laughs> learns how domain names work. <laughs> and uh, they've just taken on a third member, Gaffer Mondo, Gareth Monger, who's now helping out with time.tetsu.com. Uh, kind of hilarious cool. adventure, time, style. Tezu themed <laughs> comic. It's not at all niche. Niche. It's spelled, it's pronounced niche. Then there is also comic.tezu.com. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> comic.tezu.com, which is uh, the Tetrapods Audio comic uh, produced by our good friend Ethan Kozak, known to his friends and others as the Black Mud Puppy. <laughs> um, Forever in the quest for cash, I recently set up a Tetsu Patreon account. So thank you to the people who support me at Patreon. And the Patreon account is... Ah, uh, no, I can't remember that one. But it's got a P in it at the start. Um, Patreon.com forward slash Tetsu. And you can go there to see progress on my giant vertebrate paleontology textbook. There's a set of Tetrapods Orgy merchandise which is available from the Tetsu Red Bubble Shop, redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Tetsu. You can buy t shirts there featuring monitor lizards and cro- fossil crocodiles and dinosaurs and stuff. And sort of basically smart ass comments that you can go, hey, look at me, I'm wearing a t shirt, I know more stuff than you do. Uh, we also yeah. sell t shirts through our Redbubble Tetsu.com. Tetsu. Tetsu. Tetsu podcast. Tetsu podcast shop. Which is Tetrapodcats. Tetrapodcats. And thank you to the people that have sent in pictures of themselves wearing t shirts because I really appreciate that. John and I have produced a couple of books which you should buy if you haven't already, a slacker. Uh, All Yesterdays, which is about science and speculation in paleontology. And um, Cryptozoologicon, which are available from our. Irregular books dot sh- irregular books shop. Uh, volume two of the Cryptozoologicon. Irregularbooks.co. <laughs> Irregularbooks.co, yeah. yeah. Volume two of the Cryptozoologicon. Soon to appear. Soon to appear. As soon as just, that giant vertebrate paleontology textbook is done. Just a couple of things out of the way. As for you, Tim, again, um, uh, I tweet at... Well, if they follow standard imperial procedure, they'll 
dump their garbage before they go to light speed. Then we just float away. <laughs> At Tetsu, uh, this Tetsu will do Facebook page. Very important that you go and like this. Thank you very much. Uh, I think that's it. And I also wanted to thank yet again. Is it Mark the Fish or Jeff the Fish? <laughs> is it Mark the Fish? Yeah. The look on the look on your face of substantial agreement <laughs> demonstrates that it's Mark the Fish who produced I hope it is anyway. You have to edit that in post. Jesus. Uh produced some um what do you call them? Transcripts. Transcripts, Transcripts of Tezu podcast episodes, which John has handed on to other people and they are now available online. <laughs> Correct? <laughs> <laughs> nice um yeah what's what's the word for that future management yeah management by promise yeah yeah good because it's valuable information it needs to be out there it needs to be yeah. shared with the world right that's me okay. done god jesus took a long time all right i'm at johnconway.co where you'll find links to my twitter and my facebook uh and my blog which is on tumblr um but anyone can read that of course not just Tumblr people. And um, that's it, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> right, we're done. Yep. Uncle Darren's anecdotes. During the latter part of the 1990s, I lived in the small riverside community known as Walston, a location made notable for its presence of a hovercraft terminal and an enormous toll bridge constructed during the 1970s and known locally as the New Bridge. It was in the shadow of that bridge and adjacent to that hovercraft terminal that I discovered a small shingle beach but 10 metres wide that frequently yielded the bones and other remains of local animals. Over the course of several years, I made a habit of visiting the beach on a weekly basis, eventually amassing a large collection of bones belonging to diverse animals. Seabirds, waterfowl, domestic chickens, foxes, rabbits, cats, sheep and pigs. These remains clearly had diverse and curious origins that cannot be divulged here today. Among my most thrilling discoveries was the heavily decomposed carcass of a domestic cat, consisting of the better part of the skeleton, but still held tightly together thanks to a substantial quantity of adhering soft tissue. The soft tissues were all but useless and had to go, but how could they be removed? They were tightly adherent indeed. And so it was that my excellent friend and office mate, Stig Walsh, made the novel suggestion that we might use his old and redundant microwave oven as a clever and efficient way of removing the adhering tissue. Everyone to experiment with the destruction of animal carcasses and bowing to Stig's evidently superior expertise in the technique concerned, I arrived at Stig's house on a pleasant autumnal evening, decomposing cat carcass to hand. The technique which Stig had pioneered involved the placing of the carcass within a warm bowl of water before repeatedly microwaving it. We chopped the cat into manageable microwavable portions and proceeded to treat them one at a time within the oven. 
Over the ensuing hours, the dried and ugly soft tissue softened and parted from the bones, leaving us with pristine white cat bones. The experiment was a remarkable success, as can be easily verified today through examination of my excellent cat bone collection. There was one drawback. The smell of hot dead cat was unbearably terrible. <laughs> 